A lot can happen in the next three years. Like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans are available for these changing times. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer budget-friendly, flexible coverage for people who are in between jobs or missed open enrollment. The plans last nearly three years in some states, with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. So for whatever tomorrow brings, United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans may be for you. Learn more at UH1.com. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with PlushCare. PlushCare accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at PlushCare.com slash weight loss. That's PlushCare.com slash weight loss. PlushCare.com slash weight loss. Hello, I'm Matt Shirley, and this is Politics Without the Boring Bits, revisiting my series, The Political Editors, speaking to the people who wrote the first draft of political history for The Times. And in this, the final episode, the current political editor of The Times, Stephen Swinford. I don't think that other people in the world would share the view that there is mounting chaos. Where there is discord, may we bring harmony. It is time to put up or shut up. A new dawn has broken, has it not? This is a decisive moment for the world economy. Now the decision has been made to leave, we need to find the best way. Nothing has changed. Nothing has changed. I have been repeatedly assured that there was no party. Growth, growth and growth. Some mistakes were made. Since 1785, Times journalists have been writing the first draft of history. In our series, The Political Editors, we've reflected on half a century of politics with the people who had a front row seat. We began with Watergate and we end with Partygate. In part seven, current political editor Stephen Swinford on the political violence of three years with three prime ministers, Tories squaring up to each other, serene Liz Truss as her premiership blew up and sacking Kwasi Kwarteng by tweet. In the two and a half years that I've been political editor, we've had three prime ministers, at least 42 ministerial resignations and literally they physically squared up to each other in the garden. The violence, the political violence, nearly ended in fisticuffs. Kwasi Kwarteng was completely unaware that he was going to be sacked. And he learned that he was going to be sacked reading that tweet and the Times Live blog. Steve, one of the really striking things, looking back over all of the political editors we've spoken to, half a century of political history, where we think almost everything that could happen did happen, And yet you're the political editor, right slap bang in the middle of a pandemic. It was a very challenging time. There were several scoops that the Times broke during that period, including revealing that there was going to be a second lockdown. And there was an incredible amount of dysfunction, an incredible amount of issues in number number 10 and problems. And the result of that, what we came out from, was Boris Johnson tried to reset his premiership. He tried to start again. He got rid of Dominic Cummings and he wanted to find a new path forward. He wanted sunlit uplands. And it precipitated the most incredible period in politics of political violence that 
I think most people would accept for, for generations. It was in the two and a half years that I've been political editor, we've had three prime ministers, at least 42 ministerial resignations. Uh, it's, been, it's been politics on hyperspeed for two and a half years. It's amazing. You've had as many prime ministers in two and a half years as Phil Webster managed in almost two decades because he had basically John Major, Tony Blair, Gordon Brown. It's been a period of extraordinary political dysfunction on multiple fronts. And being the political editor at the time is being able to report on that. And my great predecessor, Francis Elliott, who you've also interviewed, when I interviewed for this job, said, the great thing about the time, Steve, is you get to tell the truth. Now, you, you and I know Francis is a, a, a deeply cynical man on many levels, but he meant it. And it is the great privilege that my job is to give readers a ringside seat on these events without fear or favour and literally just tell them what is happening. There's a nice symmetry as well, because this series began with Fred Emery, who was the political editor in the late 70s. But before that, he covered Watergate. And your political editorship so far has been dominated in many ways by Partygate. And actually, sometimes we get a bit caught up in the idea that everything that's happening right now is unprecedented and new. And actually, the fall of a president 50 years ago, the fall of a prime minister on your watch. And it was a kind of the drip, drip nature of Partygate. So... When I started as political editor, all the seeds were there. The events, many of these events had already happened, these lockdown breaching parties. And when they started to emerge, the key figures had, were also in place. So Dominic Cummings had left number 10, had animus against the prime minister, clearly thought he was completely incompetent, a shopping trolley. And the leaks just kept coming and coming. He doesn't have a plan. He doesn't know how to be prime minister. And we'd only got him in there because we had to solve a certain problem, not because we thought that he was the right person to run in the country. And it became completely unsustainable. And one of the most interesting things from my perspective about covering that period is the total erosion of trust in number 10. So number 10, it relies on trust. It relies on when it says something is not true, that people report that. But because things had happened and it was issuing very firm denials that there had been any parties, that there'd been any issues in number 10 at all, it just became apparent that these were lies, that there were real issues with what was emanating from the building in number 10. And there was almost during that, under Boris Johnson's premiership, a total breakdown in trust between the lobby and number 10. And it's interesting that because actually, and lots of people will, will shout at the radio and they'll say, oh, I don't know why you've ever trusted them. Politicians have always lied. But there has been this sort of agreement, this unspoken rule between special advisors and ministers and the press, journalists, you don't lie. They might obfuscate, they might not return your calls, but you don't tell straightforward lies. And that was, it was quite a breach, wasn't it, in that unwritten rule? It was a huge breach of that unwritten rule. And for a lot of Boris Johnson's premiership in the aftermath of it, we've been in a debate about what is a lie? What is misleading? Is it intentional? Is it unintentional? Is it knowing? Is it not knowing? But either way, you ended up in a situation where, where effectively the lines from number 10 were just untenable and unsustainable. And that went right to the top ultimately because you had the Prime Minister standing up in the Commons, Boris Johnson, saying that there were no parties and there were no, no events that happened in number 10 and these lines turned out to be wrong. I have been repeatedly assured since these allegations emerged that there was no party and that, and that no Covid rules were broken. His defence that he wasn't aware of these events and therefore couldn't be held accountable ultimately for them, it didn't wash with the Privileges Committee as we saw and he's no longer an MP. It's extraordinary because... It happened so quickly after the 2019 general election. He wins this extraordinary 
majority. He, I think, in an interview with you, said that he wants, you know, he was eyeing a decade in Downing Street, and he barely beyond that lasted a year. Do you think that ultimately the seeds were sown, actually, just by dint of Boris Johnson's personality, that his ability to survive in a job is pressured and detailed and dramatic as being prime minister? He just, he just was never going to survive and and do ten years like a Blair or a Thatcher. I think one of the issues was the kind of chronic instability under Boris Johnson's government. And there were successive rounds of this. It wasn't just at one point. And what I mean by that is there was constant infighting in number 10. There were different figures and different people who were all trading off. They all thought they had his ear. And then in cabinet, there was constant infighting. Uh, And then beyond that, there was infighting between the Prime Minister himself and his Chancellor, Rishi Sunak, who had two very different visions. So the way that he governed and the way he solicited advice was inherently unstable. What I kind of felt looking at it in hindsight was Boris Johnson didn't really have very many loyal people around him that were loyal to him personally, and it was an incredibly fractured and disunited number 10. One of the things I wanted to look at was when Boris Johnson actually quit and the events around number 10 and what was going on, how personal it suddenly got. So in his dying days, as he was sitting in number 10 and everyone was resigning left, right and centre, Boris Johnson appears to have blamed Michael Gove and gone back to that oldest of the Tory wounds, that oldest of the Brexit psychodramas. I've realised in the last few days that Boris isn't capable of building that team and providing that unity. I got this extraordinary briefing from a senior ally of Boris Johnson as everything was falling around him, that it was all that snake Michael Gove's fault. And this caused its own, had its own repercussions. We had, shortly after that, the Summer Party, which was a spectator's big event in Spectator Garden, and it was within days of the resignation of Boris Johnson. And I remember standing there, and there was a guy that worked for Michael Gove called Josh Grimston, and there was a guy that worked for Boris Johnson, his director of communications called Gito Harry, and literally they physically squared up to each other in the garden. The violence, the political violence, nearly ended in fisticuffs in front of me and several other journalists at this very serene, cerebral event. So it was just, there was a kind of undercurrent of violence throughout of it all that never, even in its dying days, was still there. That's a good one. And in fact, I think at that event, it was the early days of the Tory leadership contest to then replace Boris Johnson, which he soon at was at sort of one end of the garden, gland having everyone. Liz Truss at the other. I mean, what an extraordinary leadership contest, basically this time last year, where this sort of disjoint happened even more, where Liz Truss was the darling of the party, but the public never really warmed to her. And so it, and nor actually did her colleagues, and so it played out when she became Prime Minister. And when she became Prime Minister, I mean, that 49 days in terms of sheer carnage takes some beating. And I, I, I want to go back to nearly a year ago to that conference, that Conservative Party conference, because I remember walking in there and literally arrived at conference and was receiving briefings from trust allies in the most awful foul terms against the people that she thought were trying to remove her, and then likewise on the other side. And it was complete chaos. We had a lunch with Kwasi Kwarteng on the day that he dropped the additional rate of income tax, and he was remarkably calm at this lunch, remarkably calm. Several hours later, he's forced into one of the biggest U-turns that completely destabilised the government. And I also remember going to see Liz Truss at that conference, so sitting there and 
by this stage, many acts of political violence have been perpetrated. Grant Shapps, who was very concerned about Liz Truss's regime, was going around with his Samsung phone, which folded out and had a giant spreadsheet. He got on a it. new phone because it folded out, so it had a bigger screen, so he could see the, the spreadsheet which listed people who might bring down Liz Truss, basically. Exactly. It was a long list of people that were there, were, 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 and the, the threat was very visible. Michael Gove was very publicly trying to undermine her. And so the, the Tory warfare was all out and she'd been forced to drop this flagship measure, the 45p rate. And when we saw her in person in her conference suite, she was just remarkably calm. She was remarkably sanguine about it all and she thought there was a way through, she thought there was a way forward. The abolition of the 45p tax rate became a distraction from the major parts of our growth plan. That is why we're no longer proceeding with it. I get it and I have listened. I remember emerging from it thinking, that is one of the most surreal things. I've ever, literally, everything is blowing up around you and you're just very serene and very calm about it. And I thought, I could only assume that she was disconnected from the events that were happening directly around her at that point in time because you walk out into that hotel bar afterwards and it's all there in the open again. (laughs) And then, of course, we come back from the party conference. Liz Truss says she's a fighter, not a quitter. And then Kwasi Kwarteng is in America. He's at the IMF. He's told to come home because it's all going a bit wrong. And you, (laughs) in an act of high political drama, essentially sack Kwasi Kwarteng by tweet. So what happened was Kwasi Kwarteng was flying back, as you say, from the IMF, and all was not well. And I picked up a suggestion that was really incendiary that Liz Truss was about to sack Kwasi Kwarteng. And it's the kind of thing you have to be very careful with. So I did some more checking and I got it confirmed. And then I thought, well, what do I do with this? It's like, this is politics happening at hyperspeed. It's not like we wait for newspapers anymore. We have live blogs, we have Twitter. So I thought, let's just get it out there. So we did the tweet and we put it at the top of the live blog on the Times' live blog and everything just exploded because at this point in time, Kwasi Kwarteng was completely unaware that he was going to be sacked. And he learned that he was going to be sacked reading that tweet and the Times Live blog. And I actually learned on Twitter, on Steve Swinford's Twitter. So I was in the car on the way to Downing Street and my special advisor said, oh, have you seen this? And I looked at it and it said, you know, Kwasi Kwarteng has been sacked or will be sacked. I can't remember which dense it was. And I was very much of the view that, um, oh, well, that's interesting. There was an amazing series of photos. There was one when he got into the car at the airport when he was smiling for the cameras, <laughs> going to seal his trust, going to fix the economy, going to make everything right. And when he got out at number 10, looking very grim-faced. When I say politics is happening at hyperspeed, that is one of the big changes. If you're looking at all of the political editors you've interviewed... We're in this era now where, and particularly that Liz Truss era, things were happening almost minute by minute. You were getting entire budgets reversed in a matter of hours. You were getting successive cabinet resignations, appointments. And it's just the sheer pace of it that is one of the biggest changes in covering politics. Do you think that a Liz Truss prime minister would have survived that period if it had been the 1970s? Is there something about the relentlessness of rolling news, social media, live blogs, and actually the fact that the Westminster Village feeds that beast the entire time in perhaps the way they they wouldn't have done because they would have thought, well, you had one deadline at the end of the day. Do you think those sets of economic and political circumstances would have been survivable in a different media era? No, I don't think they would have been. I think for two reasons. One is the choices that she made. So that offer of £45 billion worth of unfunded tax cuts, which fundamentally destabilised the markets. 
And secondly, just the sheer number and the profile of people that were opposed to her. So there were so many enemies. It wasn't just factions. This was hundreds of MPs literally ranged against her. As you said, Matt, she had the support of the membership, but a very large chunk of the Conservative Party MPs, Mm. the parliamentarians themselves, were opposed to her. And that became totally unstable. So when you get those two things, you've got her choices, you've got these very risky choices on the economy that she took with the consequences, allied with the fact that there were so many people who didn't want her to be Prime Minister in the first place, and that meant it was totally unsustainable. And that would have been as unsustainable back then as it was now. Now, Twitter, the way we report on things accelerates all of that. It means that things happen faster, hence it was a 49-day premiership, but all of the seeds of the destruction were there almost from day one. The fundamentals ultimately remain the same. Uh, This is Matt Chorley speaking to Steve Swinford in the final part of our political editors series. Up next, we move on to his third Prime Minister in his many years and we take a look at what might happen in the future. A lot can happen in three years, like a chatbot may be your new best friend. But what won't change? Needing health insurance. United Healthcare Tri-Term Medical Plans, underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage that lasts nearly three years in some states. Learn more at UH1.com. It's that time of the year. Your vacation is coming up. You can already hear the beach waves, feel the warm breeze, relax, and think about work. You really, really want it all to work out while you're away. Monday.com gives you and the team that peace of mind. When all work is on one platform and everyone's in sync, things just flow. Wherever you are, tap the banner to go to Monday.com. Many of us have those stubborn pounds that seem impossible to lose, no matter how good we eat or how hard we work out. My solution is Plush Care. Plush Care is a leading telehealth provider with doctors who are there for you day and night to partner with you in your weight loss journey. They can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wagovi and Zepbound for those who qualify. Plus, they accept most insurance plans. To get started, visit plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. Matt Jolly on Times Radio. Speak to Stephen Swinford as part of our political editors series. We've looked at half a century of political history told by the political editors of the time. Steve is the current political editor. So, Steve, we, we should move on to the current Prime Minister. But even the period between Liz Truss's resignation and Rishi Sunak finally getting the job that he wanted, an extraordinary moment of Boris Johnson attempting a comeback. Uh, clearly, that, that sort of comeback now would be harder because he's not still an MP. Do you think he was delusional to think he could have come back at that point last, last what, October, November? I think it would have been very hard for him to come back at that point. But it is worth remembering he did still have quite a significant number of MPs backing him. They were Johnson loyalists in the party. So there was space for it. I think that ultimately, if it came down to it, Rishi Sunak would have had the broader support and would have won it. But it would have been a very nasty and very bitter leadership contest. Um, so was it delusional? I don't know about delusional because there was a potential way of him actually achieving what he set out to do, but it was very unlikely. And the consequences of that bloodshed, we're probably getting close to general election territory at that point of them ripping, ripping themselves to shreds again. So here we are then. We've got Rishi Sunak as Prime Minister. It's fair to say that the, the pace, the psychodrama, if you like, of politics 
has settled down. The conversation now is actually much more about the economy, probably, than it is about personalities. Um, but it's not doing him any good in the in the polls. How do you find Rishi Sunak as a as a prime minister's deal with compared to compared to the others? So his approach to this job. So so lots of people have known Rishi Sunak for quite a while. I, I know him dating back from when he was a relatively junior minister in the Department for Communities. And he, he was always approachable and he uh, is friendly and will talk to journalists. Um, but his approach to this job has been one to minimise risks, as you said, to take out the psychodrama, to try to get a grip on the economy and to try to turn things around. And as we sit here today, Matt, we are at effectively a tipping point in his premiership in that, yes, things are calmer. I would say this is the quietest recess that we've seen since 2014, I think. I was trying to work out how... Pre, yes, pre-Scottish um, yes. referendum. Yeah, yeah, yeah pre-Scottish referendum, pre-Brexit. Um, so this is a relatively quiet recess. It feels like it used to, but you've still got this thwonking 20-point gap in the polls. And everyone that I'm talking to in the Cabinet and the Ministers and the Tory MPs are saying, he needs to do something. We can't just have this five priorities, which are basically about making everyone's life a little bit less bad or less worse than it is now. He needs to offer a positive vision and he needs to go out there and do it. And now Rishi Sunak is naturally cautious. So he's weighing up when is the right time to do that and what that looks like. But I am detecting an impatience among Tory MPs. We've got um, MPs will be back shortly. And when they come back, the party is going to start getting much more difficult to manage again. And crucially, Cabinet is going to start getting much more difficult to manage again. I have to say, Steve, having worked closely with you in the Times Parliamentary Office, I've never seen anyone work the phones harder. Quite often I'll be talking to you and suddenly I'll look around, he's on the phone again, he's got just a relentlessness of of, of bashing the phones, get, basically trying to get every story from every angle. Who, without necessarily naming names, is it the Labour Party, is it Tory backbenchers, is it the Cabinet, Who who's always guaranteed to pick the phone up? Who? How, how do, you, how do you, you hammer the phones to make sure you're getting to, like, as you said, getting to, as, as much as you can, the truth of what's going on? So one of the misconceptions about politics is it's all about the principles. So it's all about the kind of big figures, the leaders, the cabinet ministers. It's not. Westminster is a kind of interconnected spider's web almost of lots of people and many of them are very small players. People won't know their names, they won't know who they are and occasionally you find someone and they know everything and they're really interested in it and they know the whole wider picture and so often the very biggest some of the very biggest stories that i have broken have come from relative people on the scale that are minnows and would not be considered that no one knows their names as i said um but that's the point that it goes far beyond the principles the people that know what's going on in the rooms of power and where things are happening are, are much kind of lower down the food chain than you think and it's a lot of those people um that are relatively anonymous that are in, incredibly useful to me and always have been that's not to say that the cabinet ministers and all the other players aren't important but it's a much broader network than people think and looking back over this this series then, you know, Fred Emery, the rise of Margaret Thatcher, the fall of Jim Callaghan. We had Julian Haviland and his tussles with uh, Margaret Thatcher and his extraordinary stories about the Queen as well. Uh, you know, Peter Riddle in the, the fall of Thatcher, the Blairite New Labour area uh, dominated by Philip Webster, the coalition, uh, Roland Watson, Brexit, was sort of dominated Francis Elliott's time. Given the drama of the last two or three years of you having the political editor job, would you swap that for any other period 
in that in that time? Absolutely not. It's, <laughs> it's been it's been as look as as a journalist, like I say, my my modus operandi is to put readers in the room where it's happened, and you will not find a more it may be Brexit actually the period after Brexit yeah. was on a par, but this to try to give readers a full three sixty view of what's going on in government, which is I think what it's all about. This is as good as it gets from that point of view, trying to just explain to people what's happening and why it's happening. Um, a pinch me moment in the last three years of you being political editor where you just thought, I've really got, as we've been, the phrase I've been using in this series, the sort of front row seat of political history. So one of the things I wanted to tell you about, one of the most surreal moments that I've had as a reporter, Matt, was during the pandemic. So I remember it really distinctly. It was 2020. And I had been working on a story all day that Matt Hancock was pushing for stronger, another lockdown, basically a second lockdown, but Boris Johnson was resisting. And for some reason, the pandemic things always happened on Fridays. And I wanted to give you a little insight into my setup. So I was sitting in the bedroom on my fold-out desk with my laptop, because that's what the pandemic was like. And I was calling around as many people as I could and something didn't smell right about the story. Something wasn't good and it, it just didn't chime correctly. And it got to six o'clock and we have early copy deadlines on a Friday and the editor started calling me and saying, you need to file your story now, Steve. I said, I just need a little bit more time. Something's not quite right with the story. I said, no, no, we, we're going to go late off stone. You need to file your story. So I said, hang on, John Wither was the editor. And then I managed to put in a few more calls and I discovered that there had been a secret meeting that afternoon between Boris Johnson, the then Prime Minister, and all the most senior cabinet ministers. And they had decided to put the UK into a second lockdown that was going to start the following week. Uh, And I sat there and I thought, this is utterly incendiary. Um, And I rang up a few more people, managed to stand it up, managed to crash it into the paper for first edition that evening. And I remember sitting there after doing this, and the the adrenaline from that kind of reporting is, it's quite an extraordinary thing as you're reporting on it. And I was just sitting there in my bedroom, on my fold-out desk, on my laptop, and just thinking, this is absolutely extraordinary. We're going down to to lockdown. I remember going downstairs and saying to friends and family, so just so you know, everyone, we're going into lockdown. And we, when the front page came out, when the, our story came out that evening, the Times was the first to break that story. Um, and it actually accelerated the moves. The government then had to, because it was all true, the government had to bring forward a press conference till Saturday. Boris Johnson did a press conference on Saturday. Christmas is going to be different this year, but it's my sincere hope and belief that by taking tough action now, we can allow families across the country to be together. All it was is reporting on what was happening, but at the same time, it's extraordinary sometimes the extent, the kind of influence that that reporting can have when you're just literally someone with a phone at a computer on a fold-out desk. Um, And a lot of the pandemic was like that. We were finding out about things that would affect the lives of millions and millions of people very significantly, uh, just literally on our own in our bedrooms doing our reporting because we couldn't go into work. Um, And it it just really has stuck with me as one of the the most surreal moments of my career. You've been political for three years. A hell of a lot's happened in that time. What do you think politics looks like in three years' time? I think the economy is still dominant. I think that whoever wins this election is probably going to be faced with an issue where they actually have to raise taxes. They're not going to say that publicly now. They'll all go into the election promising to cut taxes. But it's going to be difficult. And the big question for whoever wins it is, can they get economic growth going? Can they get get us out of this? And, and that's what 
a lot of politics actually comes down to. It does always come down to the economy. It's at the root of everything. Yes, there are good choices, there are bad choices, there are good fiscal choices, there are bad fiscal choices. But are people feeling, it's the oldest question in the world, Matt, yeah. are you feeling better off? You've got more money in your pockets. And the concern I've got looking at this is I'm not sure that given the economic, the tectonic economic plates involved, it's going to be very difficult to get growth going and it's going to be a very difficult government, whoever wins it. Well, Stephen Swinford, current political editor of The Times and uh, following in the footsteps of some greats that we've, we've heard from over the last uh, few days. Thanks very much for joining us on Times Radio. Absolute pleasure. That was Stephen Swinford, The Times' current political editor, bringing to an end our series, The Political Editors. Don't forget to hit subscribe so you don't miss any future episodes of Politics Without the Boring Bits. And if you like the sound of this sort of thing, you're going to love my live Times radio show weekdays from 10, and I'll be back in January. But for now, for me, Matt Chorley, it's goodbye. <laughs>